This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Flyers protesting anti-white propaganda were found in the Westdale neighborhood and on campus at McMaster University. To talk more about all of this, Scott Hasty is with us, editor-in-chief of McMaster's student paper, The Silhouette, and is with us now. Hello, Scott. How are you today? I'm all right. How about you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this, Scott. When did you first hear or see these things? Um, so I discovered the uh, the flyers or posters when I walked into the student center uh, on Monday at 7.30 a.m. I was just on my way to work, and I saw one of the posters on a staircase that I take a few times every day. Um, so, yeah, about 7.30, um, they were posted overnight, um, according to McMaster Security. And what were your thoughts when you saw them? Um well, at first, they, I mean, the way they were set up, it says racist white people in the largest letters. So I walked over and looked at it, and then um, I was shocked. Um, I know the buildings are open all the time and, and that people come in and out, but um, I was shocked just to see these kind of views and the links that they, they viewed or they, uh, they had in them. Uh, I was just so surprised to see that on campus and, and put up, but... Upon reflection, I don't know if I really should be considering what the presidential election um, really normalized as, as kind of some, some ideals. Uh, did you originally think that the message was the opposite of what it was? Um, no. Because uh, you were saying about how you first noticed uh, uh, initially, what did you say, white, or, um, white, yeah, white racist, racist white people? Racist white people, and, and I thought, well, there are some events that do discuss anti-racism, so I thought it was maybe a poster right. for some events. And so what has the response been around Mac on this? Um, the response has been, I mean, obviously from the from the organization, McMaster University has condemned it. They condemned it immediately in a response uh, from an email that I sent them. But from students, it's been, there's a lot of people who are, are disturbed and upset by it. Um, and I think almost across the board, we see people who say these have no place on campus. But um, truthfully, there are some people who have contacted me to say, no, you got to hear these people out. They they have a right to free speech or, or what have you. Um, so, yeah, it's been mostly uh, negative right. and people saying this is wrong. But, yeah, there are some people who think that the poster should have stayed up. D- did they tell you what the message was? What You know, they hear them out. What's to hear? What, what was their message? Do we so know? To be, so to be totally honest, there were a lot of people who say, hey, hold on, just hear them out. And I would ask, did you look at the links? Did you mm-hmm. see what these people are spreading? Yeah. And they would say, well, no. <laughs> and I said, okay, come back to me when you do that. Because honestly, like, why, why have a discussion if you haven't even read what these people are advocating for? And, and make no mistake, it's, it's white supremacist, white nationalist stuff. Yeah. Um, so are there any, uh, any sort of uh, thoughts as to where they could have come from? Is there, is there some sort of underground organization on campus? Uh, what are your thoughts there? Um, as far as I know, there's, there's nothing, but... Y- nothing like um, a McMaster chapter of some kind of alt-right, like nothing official that's come across my desk or any of the staff. So as far as an organizational push for these posters, I'm not sure. Hmm. And uh, boy, we just seem to live in a a land of extremes now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, have you ever had anything in the past? You were mentioning earlier that you thought this is obviously spawned by the Trump election and how somehow that has... Uh, made this sort of behavior okay and acceptable by the masses. Are you seeing more and more of this sort of stuff on campus? Um, 
To be fair, no. We had like this is the first time I've seen something about you know the quote unquote alt right yeah. or or anything with, to do with white nationalism or white supremacy. To no, I've never seen anything like this. Um, it it there is a coincidence that um, uh, Donald Trump is elected and then you see these things pop up. So uh, alt right, all of that is. Do you get the feeling that this is just a disguise for a you know a larger anti a larger racist movement? Oh yeah, come on, uh, yeah. Like I think from a branding perspective, alt right has just brought it into. They're saying, you know what? It's kind of like right wing. If you're right wing, we're kind of like that, and it's not. It's yeah. It's not something that you see on the spectrum that you know we learn about. But um, no, it's just a. It's a title for something that has nothing to do with uh, politics that we would accept in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and, and I mean, we blurred out the uh, the links to stuff because we didn't want to give the promotion. We did that after the fact. Right. Um, a misstep on my part. But um, those links, I mean, it's not hard to go and find them, and they're about Canada and they're anti-immigration. Um, they're, they say that white people are better than all other races. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, just because you identify as alt-right doesn't mean that your views are um, not racist. Right. Uh, is this over at Mac, do you think? Uh, do they have a handle on this, or do you think this is a sign of other things brewing? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a sign of other things brewing, but as far as having a handle on it, how do you stop people at 1 a.m., in theory, at 1 a.m. from putting up a poster. Yeah. Um, and I can I can say, too, a heavier police presence on campus would be met with a lot of backlash from students, so you can't do that either. Yeah. Because um, people... Um, yeah, you don't want to do... An, feel comfortable yeah, you officer. don't want a knee-jerk reaction to uh, something that's an extreme minority. Uh, security cams, any chance that there's something on those? Um, yes, there is a chance that there's something on those. As you said, or as has been reported, there were posters put on our doors, um, our office doors, and I know that there's um, security footage down the hallway that um, we're just near. Mm-hmm. But um, how do you kind of identify these people? We're a campus where there's probably 30,000 people involved in a week, right? With when you consider all the staff, postgrad, visitors, yeah. undergrads, all that stuff. Um, good luck. Uh, it's yeah. going to be, I don't know the technology at their hands, but I don't know if you can possibly identify one person um, from security footage. Scott Hasty has been with us, editor-in-chief of McMaster student paper, The Silhouette. Scott, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. No problem. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. It is uh, 1219. Let's bring in Evelyn Myrie uh, and get her take on all of this. Hello, Evelyn. How are you today? I'm doing doing well, Scott. Uh, Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, We talked about this uh, last week in regard to... Uh, all of a sudden, the Trump campaign giving uh, somehow some sort of approval to uh, people, uh, racist people, to come out of the out of the out of the weeds and, and into the mainstream. Are you surprised what we've seen at McMaster with these uh, posters? Um, I'm disappointed. People don't surprise me anymore, but I'm disappointed. Um, you know, they're yeah. I'm disappointed that we are even having this conversation because. Sometimes, you know, we think that we are so far ahead and we should not worry about our rights and uh, and, and um, our rights and privileges. And um, then things like this remind you that you, can, you have to always keep on top of it because the time you let up to say we're fine, everything is okay, then 
um, incidents like this um, show its its ugly um, head. So um, it reminds us that we have to remain vigilant. Uh, we have to. We should not take our rights um, for granted. Many people have fought for us to have many of the rights we have today, be the wrong gender, accessibility, uh, disability, LGBTQ, and so forth. We cannot sit on our laurels saying, oh, we're so wonderful, everything is fine. This is just a reminder that we have to be keeping our eyes on, on that issue. Is that the good thing, to the one good thing to come out of this, Evelyn? Is it's time for us to re-examine all of this again and just remind everybody? I mean, it seems we have to do it every decade or generation or so. <laughs> It's a shame, but, you know, um, I think we have to work better together. And I've always said it's a cliche that you've heard over the years, something that goes like this, you know, until all of us are free, none of us are free. So maybe women thought that they were way ahead of most of the other groups, for example, are being marginalized and or maybe a one community feels as though, you know, it's not my issue anymore because we're ahead of the other community or ahead of the Aboriginal community and so forth and so on. But it reminds us that we all have to work together because until all of us are free from this kind of a behavior, none of us are. Because today for me, tomorrow for you, right? So yeah. hmm. it's, it's a reminder that we have to be mind- we have to work together more collaboratively, more alliances to... Um, to make sure that we we protect each other. Now, uh, I was at McMaster a few weeks, uh, last week, speaking at an event, and one of the things that came to my mind, I posted it on Facebook and said, you know, when the incident uh, occurred with Janice Floyd, I said, you know, should we be hosting, um, I would call it, for, uh, for, to be in this kind of today's slogan, having conversations or uh, pop-up conversations all across Hamilton, in our own community here, about how to be an ally. Maybe people, bystanders, are just looking and saying, I don't know what to do. Let's give people the benefit of the doubt. They have no idea what to do. They're told that this is bizarre. I'm, I'm going to be generous for a minute, people, and say they don't know what to do. But So let's, let's start to have more conversations about how do you support or how do you show allyship around this issue, right? So it doesn't look like there are people from the aggrieved community that's responding, but all of us are, as as a community, as Hamiltonians and all our background, all our walk of life are responding. And maybe people don't know how to respond or what to do. I've been in situations where, you know, people made comments to me. And um, over the years, you know, I've seen more and more people say, hey, stop it. And I didn't have to be the one. Hmm doing the speaking, which is growth, right? So how do we basically educate people to respond and not to be just a bystander and say it's not about it's not me, so it doesn't really matter. Obviously the obviously the message has to keep changing and modernizing over each decade as we get presented with new challenges. We have to constantly reinforce this in the younger generation, don't we? Yes, we, we have to do that. And you know, scapegoating is a big issue because people are hurting economically and they start to point fingers at the neighbor, someone who looks a little different and so forth. And that is where we have to be mindful of because there's a lot of scapegoating taking place. I do not have have this kind of um, economic um, um, healthiness as I once had because all these immigrants are taking over jobs or... You You know know what's funny about... You know what's what's ironic about that, Evelyn, is 
you can go back over history, and we've heard that same line over and over I and know, over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And I guess that's my and, and I guess that's my point in constantly, you know, uh, revisiting this with the younger generation over and over and over because you know they don't know the struggles of the '60s, they don't know the civil rights movement, they don't know all of that stuff. And, and although they they read it through history and such, uh, it seems like each generation is presented with a new set of problems. Uh, absolutely, but for us to go back in this kind of a race issue, and it's really uh, I didn't, ex- you know, I, I'm a bit. Disappointed. Let's put it this way: we are still having this kind of a con- this kind of conversation and the kind of behavior that's taking place. Where you know, Trump is somebody who's still a lot of hate, but I've always thought, oh my goodness, he's giving permission now mm-hmm. for people to behave in this manner, and he has a really condemned uh, this kind of action and behavior by perpetrators in a very forceful way, and I that's what we are waiting for. Um, to say, I do not associate my name. <laughs> How could he actually, when yeah, he was one of the ones who was doing this for votes, I guess. I, I, it's, so what I'm saying here in Hamilton, I'm glad to see the mayor um, uh, chimed in in this. I think it's important that our leaders, such as uh, Mayor Fred, um, go out there and say this is unacceptable behavior, and all our leaders taking a stand. Because, you know, in HCCI some years ago, or SHCI, Strengthening Hamilton Community Initiative, where uh, the community responded to the hate crimes perpetrated at the, um, the Hindu Samaj temple. It's not the same thing, but it's certainly, you know, that someone says uh, Nazi Germany didn't start with the killing, it started words. So we have to start to uh, respond to the kind of words and the kind of vitriol that's taking place in our community. And I'm happy to see that Fred has chimed in. I'd like him a little bit more forcefully, of course, but I, I think it's good for him to at least acknowledge that this needs to stop. Um, I know it feels that way, but articulating it to, to the population here is a, is a positive step. So more and more people in positions of leadership as well, and in the schools, probably just start to take an active role in doing some educational work. The, the boards of education really get more robust in their uh, work around anti-racism right now, especially. Does it, does it frustrate you, Evelyn, that you feel that sometimes we're going backwards with this stuff? And that, uh, and, and, it, and it seems like we've got, we live in a land of extremes. Where's the center? Where's, where's the balance here? Yeah, it's disappointing that, you know, I feel sometimes maybe the next generation might have the answer to this. Um, um, I'm waiting to hear from, there's a platform coming up next, Next week, I believe, or this week, Friday, there's a McMaster womanist who's they're organizing an anti-racism um, conversation. So I'd like to hear what some of the young people have to say about this. Now we can help and build on what has been done in the past, because maybe there are new ideas that we need to listen to as well. Um, to, to really well said. Evelyn Myrie has been with us. Evelyn, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in uh, Dan McTagg. Uh, of course, uh, GasBuddy.com and generally uh, energy guru. Ottawa is planning on virtually eliminating the use of uh, traditional coal-fired electricity by 2013. Nothing new for us here in Ontario. Uh, I guess um, this started back in 2001 for us. Uh, how is it going to affect our relationship with countries such as the U.S. and the carbon tax all coming into play? Dan is with us now. Hello, Dan. How are you today? 
Well, I'm doing just great, hoping it gets a little warmer out there. I guess I'm one of those who likes global warming. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I think this is one of the only times we've called you and talked about something other than, uh, you know, bitching and whining about the price of gas going up. And why? Ha- and what can you tell us to make us feel better? Well, it's all related. There's uh, no doubt that uh, what's true of gasoline is true of any, any other form of energy out there. I take your pick. Natural so, gas, hydro. People, whatever. Before we get started, Dan, I want to know your impression on what uh, Premier Wynn basically said or didn't say uh, this past weekend and, and the whole mistake or calling the plan a mistake or the increasing prices a mistake. We're, we're not sure what it was. Uh, at the end of the day, what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, I'm not sure that it was her herself that brought in the Green Plan. It happened under the previous Premier. Uh, she, of course, continued that. Um, and of course, uh, there has been, uh, you know, from hue and cry, especially outside of the very large cities where uh, the cost of electricity has, uh, in many cases, doubled. Uh, the cost of distribution, some have even tripled, and it has created uh, undue pain uh, and certainly crossed any partisan barriers in terms of uh, people and affordability. Uh, this really wasn't what Ontario was meant to be. I mean, we built nuclear reactors in the 60s. We planned well ahead. We had some of the cheapest prices in North America for energy, and it did attract not only manufacturing, but investments, and it gave us the standard living that we've had. Unfortunately, since 2009, uh, it looks like we are rapidly heading towards one of the most expensive jurisdictions for hydro, and that's not just a, a, you know, a, a harm to the bottom line for consumers. It's also a disincentive, I think, for a lot of manufacturers uh, and a lot of municipalities now who are chiming in saying, we can't afford this. We have to now look dip into our reserves or, you guessed it, raise taxes to meet uh, the higher cost of energy. So this has served no one uh, at all. Uh, we have nuclear plants that have created clean energy for uh, for 40, almost 50 years. I know I was a member of parliament over the first uh, commercially uh, produced North American generation station in, in Pickering. It served us very, very well for years. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's sort of been uh, put to the sidelines in favor of this battle of, you know, how we uh, we we develop wind and solar technology, which is eons away from from you know from from taking hold, and more importantly, providing the bulk uh, amount of electricity needed to generate a, a modern uh, economy. Uh, they will say critics will say nuclear too expensive to maintain. Your thoughts? After 50 years and some of the cheapest rates up until just a few years ago, these things do wear down. But uh, the cost is, uh, is, is, a, uh, is a drop in the bucket. And I've seen some of those commentaries. They're absolutely false. Uh, I've read the auditor's report here in Ontario. Uh, they're using examples of very old generating stations in Pickering, the four that have been offline for several years and using that as an example. But Bruce Power is doing very well, thank you. Uh, they have refurbished. They have modernized. There has been a a partnership there, a privatization to some extent, and uh, uh, it's been uh, really a, uh, you know, a wonder to watch it uh, take place and to take shape. And, of course, under the current uh, uh, hydro rates, uh, they're doing excessively well. Their, uh, uh, their stock shares are doing uh, much better than most had, uh, had imagined. So I don't think you throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's given us 50 years of solid uh, electrical uh, uh, commitments and it's done, been done at a relatively cheap price. I think Canadians and certainly us here in Ontario uh, marvel at the fact that uh, we've done so well up to now. But uh, someone decided it was a good time to uh, do away with coal, which is fine. I guess I understand that. Uh, but coal represents such a small amount of the generation of the overall uh, population of Ontario. Uh, one would have thought the smartest thing to do would be refurbish nuclear. I understand at the end of the day, some of those who are advocating and, and, and against nuclear are against any type of energy other than 
uh, you know, something that they believe uh, uh, will uh, will lessen the demand. At the end of the day, they simply want green technology, and that comes either in the, in the form of uh, wind or solar, which, as I mentioned earlier, cannot possibly deliver a fraction of the uh, of the commercial and the residential needs we have here in Ontario. How will Wynn fix this? How can she fix this now that not fix this now that she's mi- admitted there is a mistake? I mean, doesn't the whole system need to be rejigged? Well, you're going to have to go back to where you were prior to 2009, and no, that doesn't mean reopening coal plants or you know uh, opening up uh, nuclear generators that have not worked in several years. What it does mean is a fundamental reprioritization, and that this idea that uh, a green plan, you know, uh, those who are uh, advocating for this kind of thing have used. Ontario really is a as a test lab have failed. It's time to go back to what actually worked. Uh, go back to 2008, 2009, uh, redraw this and allow you know commercially viable alternatives, but not using incentives that penalize uh, the province. Uh, where the premier I think is really having a hard time isn't just this is crippling the ability of ordinary people to make ends meet and to pay. And the rising number of defaults is is staggering. It is also that as I mentioned earlier, municipalities. Uh, Commercial entities are now starting to signal that this is uh, an exercise that has to be redrawn, has to be revisited, because it's uh, far too costly to the bottom line. It also segues into the wider question of now that the experiment has not worked and has been so fundamentally uh, disastrous and harmful to uh, ordinary Ontarians, uh, is this the best time to impose a cap-and-trade carbon tax? Mm. Because frankly, I think it's out of step with reality, and most people simply can't afford it. Why couldn't she see any of this coming, Dan? Like I mean, I there was no sh- there was no shortage of experts. So I've had no shortage of experts over the last several years on the show saying that this was a train wreck waiting to happen. Well, and it's not finished. I mean, they've only talked about what's happened to the caboose. The rest of the train is still mm-hmm. barreling down this 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 track of uh, of carbon taxes, which will begin uh, through a term called cap and trade. Um, it's fine if you have the advantage of most of your electricity produced by nuclear, which is zero emission. Um, there are always those who will be concerned about uh, what we do with radioact- radioactive waste, which has been you know, a, a controversial issue in itself. But uh, frankly, it's time to throw in the towel. And whether this was a trial balloon two years before an election to say it's a mistake to let people move on, get on with it, I don't think people can you know, forget the sting of having to make alternative plans and, uh, and having to reach very deep into their pockets. Uh, this was not because of any demand surplus or any supply problem. This was a government-engineered failure from the get-go. Unfortunately, those who were responsible for this are now presiding and uh, certainly sur- surrounding the uh, Prime Minister's office. This, the same group of individuals who brought in the Green Plan are now working with the Prime Minister. They're part of his core team, and as a result of that, what you see has happened is such a disaster. Ontario may very well start to express itself more, more, uh, more nationally across the country as we head towards an imposed climate, uh, uh, climate change plan, uh, as well as uh, carbon taxes, which I think are going to be, uh, frankly, disastrous for the Canadian economy as a whole. So wait a sec, Dan. How, how does admitting her mistake, and that this is exactly like you said, how does that affect the national plan? I mean, are not, all the, not only the rest of the provinces, but the country going to look at this and go, well, it clearly didn't work here. We have to come up with another plan. And this isn't about being green. This is about doing your due diligence. Yeah, 
I think it uh, would require some unmitigated arrogance to proceed with uh, knowing this is going to. Uh, isn't on, isn't an Ontario failure though? Isn't that isn't well, it, that it, right it, there? It would be a signal to that. But I, at this point, uh, Canadians have given both governments significant mandates to do what they want to do, uh, no matter what uh, the consequences are. However, that was before Premier Wynne came out and admitted that it's not working. Well, not only working, that it's a mistake, but, uh, you know, the last election, uh, both federal and provincial, the public had a, a very clear choice. They've yeah. chosen this path. And I, I'm not saying it to reproach. I'm simply saying that they have a mandate which they are allowed to fulfill, and they will certainly fulfill it federally over the next three years and provincially over the next year and a half. We'll see what happens. My concern here is it is folly, uh, and it would be uh, irresponsible that once you've des- you've designated this to be the abject failure that it is, that you continue down the road to s- somehow soft sell this and continue down the road of saying, well, uh, it's part of our obligations in future generations. You basically have harmed this generation's ability to make ends meet, and you've made uh, the cost of living that much more expensive and driven away new innovators. Uh, I'm sorry, but the technology around green uh, green plants and, and either ideas is evolving, but it's not going to happen overnight in imposing an artificial regime on everybody and you know, basically undermining the thing that works so fundamentally well for the province of Ontario and made it a leader in North America is, in my view, a continuation of irresponsibility. Has she tarnished the image, meaning Premier Wynne and this party, have they tarnished the image of Green by turning people into skeptics by just having the wrong information and the wrong protocol for all of this? I think they got out of the gate early, uh, wanted to show that they were leaders, and what they've actually done is uh, failed in the experiment uh, and, and determined for many people that we have to go a little slower. I mean, we all want a clean environment. We all want to make sure that we're doing what I, we can to ensure that uh, Canada is a leader when it comes to uh, new breakthrough technologies. But you know, even the technologies that we're using are all imported. Let's, let's be very honest about this, those windmills are not being produced and, and, and uh, 100% made in the technology in Canada. They're being a deal with Samsung. I mean, that's a Korean company which is investing jobs here in Ontario, but certainly not equivalent to the jobs that we are losing. Uh, the same for uh, solar technology. I mean, it's it's a wonderful idea. It's, it's, it's coming of age, but it's coming of age only because they've made existing conventional forms of electricity so darn expensive that uh, anybody and everyone's looking for an alternative in 10 years from now when we move to uh you know to uh to seeing where we've been over the past several years or a dozen years on this plan we're going to start to think about what we do and how we dispose of those chips and of course what are we doing to acquire the uh the materials resources necessary what part of the world are we despoiling to make these things and so you know Canadians cannot i think uh, and, and recognize that uh, we're, you know, we, we have to ensure that this is not something that's doing undue harm and that uh, it's good to be trendy, it's good to be world leaders, but you have to make sure that you're also minding your, uh, your own backyard to make sure that you're not uh, destroying or undermining your own ability to survive. As, uh, obviously, Canada tries to get off coal, as Ontario did, won't the rest point to Ontario and go, look, you're going to kill us the way you killed that province? And again, I, I'm not yeah. against I'm not against get, getting rid of coal by any means, but no. there's a way to do it, and there's a way to do it, you know, not to do it. Well, I don't think we've we've gone to the point of sequestration yet. And in other words, we have found ways carbon capture, um, you know, burying it in the ground. There's a large project in Saskatchewan. Of course, it's running over budget, but the idea is there to use uh, the CO2 that is and methane and other things that are emitted from smokestacks and capture them in in large wells. Uh, deep down in the Earth's uh, crust. And so 
that uh, technology is evolving, and it seems to be showing tremendous, significant world leadership-type promise. The world is looking at what we're doing there. But if you're simply going to say, well, we're eliminating coal, I mean, uh, the issue of emissions aside is the most efficient form of energy in the world. One lump of coal produces more energy than any other product you can think of uh, that is available to mankind. And so my sense is that uh, we need to phase out coal. We're starting to do that. It's not a big factor in Ontario. Anticoquin and I think Lakeshore had a couple of them. There were a few here and there. But what is going to happen, Scott, is regardless of whether or not you make a decision to phase it out, the cost and the increasing cost imposed by Ottawa on uh, on uh, carbon emissions. So this next year, ten dollars. Next, the following year, twenty dollars per uh, uh, per metric ton. Thirty dollars in twenty twenty. Forty dollars in twenty twenty one. And fifty dollars. That's a scale that's going to continue to go up. And I, I hear the prime minister saying he's going to phase out coal by twenty thirty. It's probably not something he's going to need to do anyways because it's going to be so expensive to produce and to emit uh, coal that uh, no one's going to want to do it. The cost of producing uh, energy or any other product via coal is going to be too prohibitively expensive. Again, an artificial imposition on a product whose outcome, I think, uh, could have been better managed, certainly with the technologies in which there are heavy-duty Canadian investments right now in coal sequestration. We should be going down that road before trying to turn around and uh, uh, throw basically the baby out of the bathwater and undermine uh, good Canadian technology. How clean can coal be? I've heard reports said saying some it can be cleaner than natural gas. Is that possible? It can be. Um, you know, I, I don't consider myself an expert in the field, but I would invite people to go look at the greatest, the latest developments from something called the Zero Emission Coal Alliance. A lot of money, a lot of time has gone into this, uh, and a number of prospects uh, show great, great promise beyond simply taking it uh, and putting it in the ground. There are other processes, including using certain types of, uh, uh, of, of, of uh, autoclaves where you have the smoke going into the emissions, CO2 going into a large autoclave and capturing it with something called serpentine, something we produce a lot of here in, in, in mining Ontario and, and Quebec, uh, putting water with that and it captures the CO2. There's all sorts of alternatives to uh, which are second generation to sequestration itself, which is putting it in the ground and capping it off and never seeing it come up again. Those are developing slowly but surely. But if everybody wants to, anybody wants to understand where the science is going on that front, knowing again, it's not in conflict with the climate change agenda, whether you agree or disagree with it. There are some great ideas that are coming out. A lot of Canadian industry is and technology is being put in that in that area, and I don't think we should uh, we should undermine that or or lessen that by simply saying it doesn't matter. We're eliminating coal because if you can find a way to sequester or to ensure the coal no longer has harmful emissions. Uh, or contributes to greenhouse gas emissions, uh, you'll have a lineup of countries, including China, which is building what a, a new coal factory, a, a new coal generation station every month for the next uh, 13 years. Uh, obviously, we know what it is costing Ontarians. Uh, Trudeau working towards this with Canada. Uh, on the opposite side of the border, Donald Trump apparently digs coal. So how does this all balance out and where are we heading here? I think he used one word, and I'm not going to defend him, but he used clean coal. And I think that's where we should be heading. Um, we shouldn't uh, simply admonish these things because there's a belief that uh, just having coal in and of itself is bad and that, uh, you know, uh, going and uh, despoiling other parts of the world to acquire the magnetics or to acquire the product used for uh, uh, for photovoltaic uh, uh, cells, in other words, solar panels, uh, is the way to go. That, too, has a negative uh, 
uh, and it's definitely a mission-prone outcome. I think we're 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 going at this a little too quickly. I think we're trying to be uh, too cute by half, and what we're failing to achieve is, on the one hand, we're losing people, the, the support of people to making these transitions. They have to be done slowly but surely. We brought in nuclear technology for the first time in 1965 uh, in, uh, into Pickering. It just followed what happened in Chalk River, and not only the disaster, but the first real efforts of trying to take nuclear energy and, and, and make it uh, commercial, make it viable. It took a long time to do that, 20 to 30 years, not three to four years. Just because you sign an agreement somewhere internationally, you have to be careful that other countries have gone way ahead of us, have made the transitions uh, from you know burning coal here in thinking England, burning coal to uh, burning natural gas. Of course, they can now meet their their you know their 1990 or 1991 objectives because they made such a huge leap in terms of uh, where they were to where they are today. People 40 years ago died of uh, great smog in, in London, England, because of the amount of coal used. Today they use natural gas and they get a pass. We've been using natural gas for a long time, but we're now told you have to do better than anything you've done before. The technology is not there. And unless you're prepared to hurt people and force them to use less fuel, in other words, fuel to heat their homes, fuel for transportation, you're really only inflicting wounds on yourself that can't always be obviously be healed, both economically and as we're learning, as certainly the Premier of Ontario is learning politically. So where do we go from here, Dan? I mean, what can the Premier possibly do? Do you think she's will take this one step further and 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 come up with something different, hit the reset button on all of it, or do you think it's just a case of you know uh, providing more? rebates back to us and trying to soften the wound going into a yeah. the impact going into an election yeah. the damage is done and she can't offer subsidies or rebates without increasing the debt um what she really has to do is to have a larger plan saying this is what worked this is what we're going to you know what this is what we're going to do to reinforce our our position and i think uh you know i, I think they're gonna have to really revisit the issue of nuclear whether they like it or not uh it's worked for 50 some odd years half a century and it's given us, and I can't be more emphatic about this because half of that time I served as a member of parliament. We had a leading province because of our ability to produce energy cheaply and with affordably, and it was a source of attraction for capital around the world. We can still do that. Now, there are ways of doing it. Bruce Nuclear is the best example I can provide, but we should, uh, we should uh, be looking at what we have, using the existing infrastructure, improve on that. My personal view is nuclear is, is the way to go. No one's going to come back to you and say, I'm sorry, you're not meeting your greenhouse gas emissions. I know there are people out there who don't like it. I remember as a child driving back through the Darlington on the 401, uh, on uh, watching the bridges and protesters in 1971, not wanting you know, the Darlington nuclear plant. Yeah. At the same time, uh, their, their, their concerns were completely and sincerely unfounded. Uh, and I think we need to look at that. But if, if the Premier wanted to do something, I think, to rehabilitate uh, you know the damage done by this I think that would be the first logical step is uh, getting back to your discussion on nuclear and we've only got another minute left or so is it the same old protest that it was way back when and I remember when these ones were coming on Uh, is it the same old protest or has that argument does it have more validity now I think it's validity but also I think it it demonstrates I think the dishonesty of some who are out there saying we want to save the planet and we want to end greenhouse gases. But, oh, no, 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 we can't have nuclear. Um, they have not made a cogent argument for why we shouldn't be reinvesting and re- reinvigorating our our, uh, our, our uh, uh, nuclear uh, generation assets. Um, these things have worked. Uh, yes, there's a cost to refurbishing, but there's also the alternative of uh, longer-term 
uh, rehabilitation uh, to uh, to provide more energy at a much cheaper price, as well considering private uh, public partnerships. And I don't say that uh, that's a that's a big deal, but they, it certainly works in the case of uh, the Bruce Nuclear. And I think uh, it, you if you want to you want to set the economy on fire, put several uh, of these plants back up start working on them, the amount of jobs that creates with mm. a purposeful end, which is to produce energy for the next 30 or 40 years, would pay for itself, both in terms of renewed economic activity while at the same time bringing back this a lot of the jobs in manufacturing and uh, critical investments that we've lost in this province, which only make our situation that much worse. Dan McTagg has been with us, former, uh, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs Critic Analyst, GasBuddy.com to find out more. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, the ex-girlfriend of Dellen Millard has pleaded guilty to obstructing justice in the Tim Bosma murder case. Uh, she has been sentenced to a year and a day this down from of course the accessory after the fact charge which uh, of course uh, would have meant a a lot different outcome for her Uh, Alex Pearson is with us of course reported the Tim Bosma murder trial for us on CHML and has been covering this for us as well and is with us now hello Alex how are you today Hello, sir. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, here we go again, but obviously a much abbreviated version of uh, the initial case. Uh, um, I guess my first question to you is, take us through the process. Tell us exactly what did happen today. Well, what happened, I mean, generally speaking, when you get a plea, um, it can go a number of different ways. You can get it so that uh, the person goes in, pleads out, and then you make follow-up dates to go into sentencing and all the rest of it. So it can take uh, a couple of months. We saw that happen in the recent Mutso case, the drunk driving case out of York Region, where four people were killed by Mark Mutso. Um, you know, he pleaded out, and then, of course, they had it following up with, you know, sentencing, et cetera. So it took a few months. Today was uh, very expeditious. Uh, she walked into court, Christina Nugda, um, you know, pleaded out right away. They had a joint um, submission that they put in. Uh, the Crown read out the agreed statement of facts. They agreed on sentencing, gave her a chance to speak, and it was really actually very quick. It took about an hour in totality. So it was very kind of short and sweet, uh, shall we say. But um, it doesn't normally or always happen this quickly, but that's how uh, we resolved the matter today because, of course, as you said, she, we were expecting that she would have a three-week trial on these you know, much more serious charges. Um, but again, for the Bosma family, and they would have been alerted to this, uh, you know, deal, it spares them a long trial. It spares them having to go through all of this terrible, terrible evidence again. And they do feel, uh, according to the Crown, that she is being held to an account. So, um, you know, I know there are a lot of people that are quite angry that she's not going to be serving uh, a sentence. You know, she was sentenced to a year plus a day, but because she had pretrial custody, she was given that and and some. So she's really only uh, going in for today, and then we'll come back out. Uh, but she will have a criminal record, and she wants to, if you can believe it or not, she's got a degree in psychology, and she wants to further that and go into medicine like her parents. So these are things that will, you know, with a, a, a conviction against her, which will stay on her criminal record. It will be uh, something that stays with her for life. She will always be known 
um, in relation to this case, one of the biggest murder trials we've seen in Canada. And further to that, she still has civil issues that she's dealing with because she is named in a civil suit, multi-million dollar civil suit that the Bosmans have launched against uh, Millard Smitch, and she is also named as well. So her, her troubles are far from over, but uh, the, the, the issue around going to jail has now been resolved. Uh, if she would, if this had gone ahead, um, mm-hmm. and I guess my first question is, uh, was there any chance they could have made that charge stick? If they had, uh, what would the sentence have been then if she was found guilty? Okay, so obstruct justice carries a sentence of, of 10 years max. Mm-hmm. Um, the other charge, accessory after the fact murder, is a very serious charge, and it can carry up to life. But it is a, a difficult charge to prove. So where the Crown said, so they read an agreed statement of facts of what she agreed uh, to taking part in. She agreed that she had destroyed evidence by removing the fingerprints from the trailer that was holding Tim Bosma's truck at the property of Della Millard's mother, Madeline, in Kleinberg. Um, that they could prove. They had a very strong case. They had the case that she had the DVR. They had the case that she had the jailhouse letters. But what they couldn't necessarily uh, prove was intent. And that is difficult because it would have been circumstantial. So what they couldn't necessarily guarantee proof of is what did Christina to know about Tim Bosma's murder? Did she know he was going to be murdered? Did she know that there was a plan in place to kidnap and, and kill him? Um, and what did she know about the cover-up? Because all along she said, I didn't know there was a truck in there. I didn't know Tim Bosma was dead. I didn't know. She didn't know anything. So the Crown would have had to prove all that. And when you get into a case of he said, she said, it is, uh, it's circumstantial. And so, therefore, it becomes a little bit more risky. So they felt that this was a resolution that worked for everybody. Um, and whether you agree with it or not, the one thing I think you can take away from this for the Bosma family is that it gives them just another chapter to close. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned on Bill Kelly's show a very different uh, Christine Nudga this time. Yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, I, I, I mean, she's an attractive girl. She's tall. You know, when we saw her um, testifying during the last trial, she, of course, was the Crown's key witness. She was, you know, long hair, kind of striding in in her heels. She made quite an entrance. But she was very kind of dowdy this time. Her hair was pulled back in a bun. She didn't have any makeup on, dressed in black. She tapped her thumb furiously during the whole proceeding. She looked quite nervous. But she was given a chance, you know, at the end of it to say something, as everybody is. You know, do you have things mm-hmm. you'd like to say? And she said nothing. She said nothing. Now, that might be because she still has civil, um, you know, uh, issues going before the courts, but it was an opportunity, and she's had a couple now, where she could speak truth to the Marsma family, and she said nothing. And I think that speaks to who the real Christina Nugda is. She's someone who cares about her. And, um, you know, it, it, it spoke volumes without saying anything at all. Uh, any idea when the whole civil suit will come to fruition? No, that'll be another couple of years away. Um, I mean, that, that'll take some time. I mean, uh, Smith and Millard both have two other trials. Well, so, certainly Millard has two other trials, being Laura Babcock and Wayne uh, Millard. Smith has the Laura Babcock matter that he has to deal with. But I would, I would imagine that the civil suit, which was launched right after the, uh, the last trial, will probably take a couple of years to get through the courts. But there's a lot at stake, because Dylan Millard was was, you know, given his father's estate, which was worth uh, a small fortune, you know, whether or not 
uh, there's much left of it or where it is because it was being held in the trust of his mother, Madeline, and has since been uh, frozen. Um, but, you know, the, the, that I assume is what the, the Bosmas are, are trying to get control of. Do we know or did we hear anything about uh, Christine's family, her upbringing, that sort of thing? Yeah, they went into a little bit of details about how close she is to her mom and dad. They come from another country. They're they're, they're European. Um, you know, they are they were doctors in their home country, but they couldn't upgrade their skills here. But they do work in the health profession, and they are said to be very very close with Christina. And she, of course, has followed in their footsteps. They talked about how she's uh, very good in school. You know, she's uh, taking courses in the health field. She does. I don't want to call her a social justice warrior, but she she gets involved in in uh, you know protesting and fighting for indigenous rights and and gets involved. She does I guess teaches CPR and lifeguarding and goes to school. She's trying to get a further degree outside of her psychology degree, um, you know, to to go into medicine. But you know, as the judge said, you know, you're obviously this is your first time offending and you've got a good track record. Uh, but he did make sure he say, "I don't want to see you again." Just so, just mm. just know that when you hang around bad people, bad things are going to happen. Wow. So, yeah. how did you know you paint a picture of promise? How did she get mixed up with these two? Well, that's that's an interesting. You know, they painted Della Millard as as older. You know, he was twenty five. Uh, you know, she was eighteen when they started dating. But of course, he was very very controlling. Um, but I've always viewed Christina as much, I wouldn't say she's smart. She thinks she's much smarter uh, than she is. But I, I, she knows more than she's ever let on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to, to think that you wouldn't be asking your boyfriend, hey, honey, what the heck is this big trailer mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> parking outside of my house? You know, what, what's inside of it? Or where have you been for three days? Or what was this so-called mission um, you know, during her testimony, I don't know if you'll recall this, Scott, but she was on the stand for four or five days. Yeah. And she made it quite known from day one. She doesn't remember anything that happened before May 6th. She didn't remember anything, so don't even ask me. And, of course, the Crown did, but she she was not going to go there. And that would have been because she was likely scared of the details coming out, even though she was protected under the Evidence Act. She, nothing that she said could be used against her in her own right. um, uh, trial. But, you know, we, we learned not only those letters that were so, so damning to Della Millard that he wrote uh, and broke a court um, order by getting in touch with her, but all the things he had asked her to do in obstruction justice, you know, tampering with evidence, getting rid of um, witness testimony, etc., but, uh, you know, there were conversations between the two where he's talking about going on a mission. And if it's, a, a, you know, if it's a successful, it'll be an all-nighter. If it's not, it'll be a, a flop and, and he'll be right over. But then there were periods of time when he didn't get in touch with her at all. And she apparently is the least curious girlfriend around because she didn't really want to know what exactly he was doing. Um, and there was a lot of innuendo in those uh, conversations where he's talking about having a rest and having a long nap and feeling very refreshed. And, of course, this is all around the time that he's cleaning up the remains of Tim Bosma um, and and talking about a paper shredder. And do you want to come out and shred paper with me? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Now, that would be something that the Crown would have to prove that, in fact, that was not paper shredding they were talking about, but that was disposing of Tim Bosma's body. Um, You know, there's a lot of debate about how 
can you prove that she actually yeah. was saying that she would be a part of it? So that's kind of where the intent part comes in. It gets tricky to prove what exactly she was privy to and not. Other than the pen, the pending civil trial, is that it for her then? Yeah, I mean, like I said, she has to give a DNA sample, so she left the courthouse today and, and uh, would have had to have checked into, um, uh, you know, wherever it is that she would have been held. But as I understand through procedure, it's more like she goes in, signs in, checks in, gives her DNA, and that's that. So, uh, you know, she can close one chapter in her life right now, but again... This is going to follow her around everywhere. Every time you Google Christina Nukta's name, she will always be the infamous girlfriend of, of you know, one of Canada's most prolific, um, you know, murders, especially if, if he goes down for, for the other two cases that he is charged in. So she'll be forever linked to this case. And I think what speaks to me the most about her is that she had the chance to do the right thing. She had the chance to give closure to the Bosnos. She had the chance to speak to them honestly. She had the chance out of anybody to speak truth to what happened in those days leading up to Tim Bosnos' death and certainly in the days after. And she chose not to. Of course, she forgot. And I think that speaks to the kind of person she is. Um, mm. You know, whereas with Marlena Menezes, Fitch's girlfriend, who you actually did get a very clear indication she was remorseful and yeah. felt terrible about it. Uh, what about the family there? I understand Charlene was not yeah. in court today. Charlene was not. You know, she's made it clear that she it's time for her to move on, and who could blame her? She has to be there for her daughter, and she has to Man. put together a life. Um, you know, the Bosmas were there. The Hank and, and Mary were there. The daughters, the brothers, uh, the, their daughters, the sisters of Tim were there. A lot of tears as they went through the agreed statement of facts. Certainly not as detailed, uh, but certainly enough for them to know what, what was going on with, with their child. So it was very emotional for them. But it was nice to see them again. They're just such warm people. And I think today for them is just, uh, you know, closing another chapter. One last question. When will the other charges surface against Millard and Smitch? When does that go to court? As I understand, Laura Babcock matter is late next year. And the Wayne Millard is uh, set to go in 2018. So there's still a ways to go. We still have the appeal situation. Both Smitch and Millard have filed an appeal, which is not unusual. Um, so we'll hear back on that, um, and then we'll wait and hear about the civil issue. But there's still a couple more chapters, um, and, and as I understand, both will be fascinating. They'll they'll play out here in Toronto uh, at the courthouses here. So we'll stay on top of it. But this is Chapter 2, and mm. it's come to a close, and, you know, parts of, of like a big relief for the Bosmas, who, who always have to remain in our thoughts. Alex Pearson has been with us and, of course, covering the Bosma trial and now the uh, plea with Christina Nudga. Alex, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. We'll talk to you soon. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.